This episode is brought to you by Aura. That's O-U-R-A. The Aura Ring, from my perspective, is the single best wearable on the market. I use it to measure my sleep, activity, and readiness on a daily basis. I bought my Aura Ring several months ago before talking with the company's CEO on the podcast. I haven't taken it off since. I believe what gets measured gets managed. So if you care at all about your health, which you should, you have to measure your sleep in order to manage it. Aura measures much more than just my time in bed. It tracks my REM sleep versus deep sleep, my resting heart rate and heart rate variability, my temperature, my activity, and much, much more. For $299, you can get your own Aura Ring on AuraRing.com. That's O-U-R-A-R-I-N-G.com. AuraRing.com. Okay, let's get into it. you so much Raul for coming on the show today and joining me uh, for this conversation really appreciate you taking the time uh, you are a expert in finance and markets and crypto and, and really new school media I would say uh, as well you're the founder and CEO of Real Vision uh, financial media brand as well as global macro investor where you do some writing and publishing of some more content uh, so it's great to have you on I've been reading some of your tweets about you know all these different you're always reading charts and uh, you know, you're going on podcasts and talking about Bitcoin and crypto. And, and I found you have like a really refreshing and reasonable perspective. So uh, looking forward to having the, the conversation today. I think the best place to start would be for those who don't know you, if you could just sort of start off by kicking off your story. And I'd love if you can go back sort of as as early as you're willing to start. I uh, love to hear sort of the coming up story of, of people like you. Yeah, of course. It's great to be here. So my story is, as you can tell, my accent, I'm English. Um, my father's actually first generation Indian, um, and my mother's first generation Dutch, and they met on a blind date in Birmingham in the UK. Um, and I grew up in the UK and went to university in the UK, I, the only university that would accept me um, at the time, and graduated in the middle of a recession in 1990, which was perfect timing. I'm like, oh God, what do I do now? Um, my father was like, well, what do you want to do? And he was in marketing. He was uh, marketing at Xerox and some other large companies. And, you know, I was toying up the idea, do I go into marketing? Do I do something else? And, you know, I'd been watching the whole kind of finance boom of the late 80s. And I thought, that's what I really want to do. And I even wrote my dissertation on junk bonds, even though I didn't really quite understand it. Um, but I kind of figured out, okay, this looked cool. So anyway, I was at my father's birthday party when somebody said to me, well, what do you want to do now you've graduated? And there were no jobs, obviously. And I had a draw full. I think I had 200 rejection letters from all the best firms in the world. And I said, well, I don't know. I'm thinking about finance or marketing. And this guy looked at me and said, it's really easy, Raoul. You can go and work for a firm like Mars. They do fantastic FMCG marketing. And you can get some free Mars bars for working for them. Or you can go and work for a bank and get free money. And that kind of made up my mind. Um, and that was one of the best pieces of advice I ever did because I caught that huge wave of the 90s as kind of the financial markets took off. We had something in the UK called Big Bank, which kind of deregulated the financial markets. And it was the rise of the derivative markets and the rise of hedge funds. So basically, I was at the epicenter of all of that for the 90s. And, the, and that's when I started realizing that I was a macro guy. I kind of was very visual in how I saw things and I loved piecing together the map, this 3D beautiful puzzle of the world that is macro investing. And macro investing, for people who aren't familiar, is basically how all asset classes, whether it's 
commodities, credit, equities, bonds, cryptocurrencies, anything, how they all are driven by the global business cycle and global economics and how that jigsaw puzzle in investing fits together. And that was the world when I grew up of George Soros and Julian Robertson and Paul Tudor Jones and Lewis Bacon um, and the rise of the hedge fund industry. And I caught that entire wave because I, I became a salesman in equity derivatives. Um, and so I ended up by luck becoming the kind of go-to guy in Europe. Um, I had it was an extraordinary fate of luck. It, I was uh, running a, a derivative team as head of sales at a UK firm called James Capel, which is a very prestigious but relatively small firm, part of HSBC, the giant bank. And I got headhunted to take the team across to NatWest, which was the big UK bank at the time. I was there and I was thinking about, okay, what do I want to do? And suddenly they hired 120 people from Morgan Stanley, the big US investment bank. And in it was this legendary sales guy called Rick Goldsmith. And Rick Goldsmith said, listen, Raoul, we're kind of restructuring what we're doing here. What do you want to do? Because your old job doesn't really work. So I said, well, actually, all I want to do is talk to hedge funds. So he said, okay, who do you want to meet? So I gave him the list of the top largest hedge funds in the world, as you do, and said, well, these are the guys I want to know. And he said, fine, I'll introduce you to them all. Come over to New York next week. So I flew over to New York, and my first meeting was with Paul Tudor Jones. And that the next meeting with was Lewis Bacon from More Capital. These are kind of the most legendary people in the history of the industry. And there my career took off. I became their go-to guy. I was their kind of interpretation of what was going on in the world. Um, and then going into that, I then got poached by Goldman um, to start and run their hedge fund sales business in equities and equity derivatives. And the Asian crisis arrived, which was one of the big macro events of our lifetimes. And having cut my teeth on a few macro events prior to that, I was kind of primed and ready for it. The hedge fund business was exploding and I was at the epicenter of everything, uh, including the epicenter of long-term capital management blowing up and everything else, which made my entire career. Because then soon after that, I was figuring out that we're probably about to go into a recession in 2000 after the big tech boom and bubble. And I decided I wanted to trade it and not advise on it. And one of my biggest clients, GLG Partners, which was the largest hedge fund firm in Europe, said, why don't you come and join us and start a macro um, hedge fund? So I did. I went across to GLG, started a global macro hedge fund, had a few really good years because 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003 were great macro years and then decided to opt out of the rat race, move to the Mediterranean coast of Spain for a quality of life change. And I started thinking, okay, what shall I do now? And I realized that I had more experience than pretty much anybody else at this stage in that hedge fund business and how they thought. And I obviously run a hedge fund as well. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to start writing macroeconomic uh, investment research and strategy for hedge funds, because we all speak the same language. So I launched that business, Global Macro Investor, and by word of mouth, it took off. Um, you know, all of the world's most famous hedge funds subscribe, sovereign wealth funds, asset managers, governments, um, family offices, and, you know, incredible to be paid to think. Uh, but that's what, what I've been done doing for 17 years, being paid to think for people. Um, and that, I was lucky enough to be at the epicenter of basically all the information flows and figured out what was going to go on in 2008. I was well ahead of that game, predicted a lot of it. A lot of my clients were people famously in the film, The Big Short, 
Um, and we kind of navigated that very successfully. I uh, didn't navigate 2009 very successfully because I stayed too bearish too long and kind of ignored my own um, body of macroeconomic framework using gutter motion, which was the big mistake of my career. But after that, also got the European crisis in 2012. But over those two crises, I realized that something was really wrong. Obviously, we'd had this debt super cycle where the world had blown up and then continued to add more and more debt as central banks had continued to use interest rates as their only tool. And I realized with the Occupy Wall Street movement and other things that were happening, the indignados in Spain, that people had had enough of and lost trust in both the financial sector and the media. And people would come up to me in the street in Spain and say, why didn't we know what was going on? People lost fortunes. Uh, you know, Spain had a huge crisis. And I, I, that sat uncomfortably with me. Why should I have all the information and nobody else does? So I started thinking about how to solve that. And then eventually stumbled across the idea of creating Real Vision. So Real Vision is started as a video on demand platform aiming at democratizing the very best financial intelligence. And essentially what we did was we just opened the access. So we, we interviewed the world's most famous hedge fund managers, not three minutes like CNBC, but for an hour at depth, talked about their framework, risk management, how they thought about things, where they thought the world was going, lessons learned. And that became a word of mouth success. And eventually it's kind of morphed into a larger kind of media platform. We have podcasting, we have free YouTube channels, we have research, we have all sorts of things, a big community called The Exchange. And we're probably, you know, one of the largest businesses active in Twitter and stuff like that. So it's been, it's been a hell of a journey, but the mission really is to democratize the very best financial intelligence. So that's the macro journey. Within that, I also had a crypto journey because back in 2013, 12, when Spain was blowing up and Europe was blowing up, I started on a project of trying to start the world's safest bank, which is a ludicrously ambitious thing to do. And I was well out of my depth, but I did it with some quite serious players. And I went around the world trying to set up this bank and realized how difficult it was. And I was speaking to a client of mine um, who said, you need to look at Bitcoin more closely. So I started looking at Bitcoin. I probably wrote the first kind of macro framework for Bitcoin back in 2012 or 13 um, about um, looking at stock to flow versus gold. I didn't have the same maths abilities as Plan B, who famously created the proper stock to flow model. But I kind of estimated that with gold at 1300 at the time, um, Bitcoin was probably worth a million dollars um, if judged on the same basis. And so I started investing in that and started my crypto journey as well as a solution to the mess that the financial industry had created of itself. So that's the story in a nutshell. That's, that's an awesome story and appreciate you, uh, you sharing the details going way back. Um, let's see, where, where do I want to poke in to start? I guess I'll, I'll start on the most recent bit, the Bitcoin and the crypto bit, uh, though I want to cover pieces of, of the macro story as well. Uh, 2012, 2013, pretty extremely early, you know, uh, like people, obviously, 2009, 2010, Bitcoin is created, uh, 2010, 2011, like, super OGs are, are finding out about it and starting to invest. And it's a lot of like cryptographers and, um, you know, libertarians and things like this. Uh, 2012, 2013, still super undiscovered. I don't know what the price was back then, but like, double digits, probably something like that. Uh, maybe even less, you know, single digits, dollars, something like that. 
so you discover this sort of maybe just get a get a tip from one of these guys that you're working with that it's something yeah. that might be interesting to you as you're trying to create the world's safest bank. Um, That's a great story in itself. So the guy who introduced me is a, a guy who is an OG, but most people don't know him. His name is Emil Woods. Um, Emil is an ex-Goldman guy, ex-hedge fund manager. And him and um, his colleague had decided that they were setting up a hedge fund in New York and they'd rented new offices. And the offices came with free electricity. And somebody mentioned Bitcoin to them. So they started mining Bitcoin to see how it worked. And they were buying it at 24 cents hmm. or not buying it, mining it at 24 cents. And those guys ended up doing extremely work. Uh, well, Chad Cascarella was the other guy who ended up forming Paxos. Um, and so, yeah, it was, a, it was amazing to be so early. And, but it was very suitable for macro people because our job is to live in the future, to look at future probabilities and where the world is going. And that's why Emil, as a macro guy, had figured it out fast. Somebody showed it to him and he joined the dots. And that's, it didn't take me very long to join the dots really fast. How did you know when you first stumbled upon it or like maybe Emil sort of helped preview it or something like this, but it was, you know, the white paper calls it like peer to peer electronic cash. And it's since become clear that it's more along the lines of digital gold, but I don't think people really understood that or thought that back then, even, you know, several years later, that was not necessarily clear, but you're talking about like this stock to flow article that you wrote in 2013. How did you recognize that early on or, or did you not? Yes, I did. I mean, I thought digital gold, um, the payment system was possible. Um, the digital gold thing made sense to me. So I kind of anchored on the two, but, you know, I also was aware that technology changed over time. And when you launch a business or a technology, you don't know where it ends up. And I was comfortable with that. And again, it was a meal who came to me maybe a year later. Yeah, maybe a year later, year and a half later and said, right, you need to understand blockchain and where this is going. And he then started talking about the attributes of blockchain. And then I started thinking, oh my God, this is the solution to custody, um, which is actually quite broken in the financial world, rehypothecation, how we uh, register derivatives, which is a big mess. And I started saying, okay, this is much bigger than I thought. Uh, and then I started getting back in again in about 2015. Right. And so I read or heard on a podcast that you basically you were in from like 2013 through, um, I, I believe, 2017, when sort of the uh, the fork wars were ongoing and you were up quite a bit at that point and you sold out and then you got back in in like 2019 and went all in on the dip in 2020. Can you tell the story around like sort of your, I don't know if it was like a loss of conviction or just sort of yeah, saying, hey, I've got a lot of chips and it's time to sell out. And then the story subsequently of, of coming back in with seemingly even more conviction than you had then. Yeah. So 2013, I bought it and it went up 100% in a month. And in macro land, that doesn't happen. So I sold it. I was like, holy shit, I have no idea what this is, but things don't do that. Um, but is now on my radar screen. I'd opened an account. Um, I knew how to trade it. I knew what it was. Um, so it was then on my radar screen, then bought back in in 2013 and then held it all the way through to 2017. 2017, the noise starts rising. And I'm not 
worried about FUD, but there was an S-curve moment. An S-curve moment is essentially when the entire basis of a project is questioned and it either survives it or doesn't. And I was not sure what the forks meant. They felt like something really wrong to me and I, I didn't have the knowledge base. And actually, to be fair, nobody in the space knew what this was going to mean. You know, was Bitcoin Cash going to going to um, go further than Bitcoin? In the beginning, it looked like it might do. And this kind of stuff was like, no, I'm out. And yes, sure, those who stayed in, I mean, I'd made, I don't know, 10, 15 times my money at that point. I didn't have a huge amount in, but enough in to make it significant. And I took my money out and I was more than happy and I never regretted the next rise up to 20,000, you know, I, I don't regret stuff like that. Um, and then I was out of Bitcoin for a while. I kind of, I remember going to the Coindesk consensus event in New York City um, in early December of 2017 saying, I think Bitcoin's topped and topped, um, I think it was a week later or something, um, which was a bit of fortuitous timing. And then I kind of got out of the way for a while. I wasn't bearish on it. I just thought, well, you know, it's, it's, it's overdone itself. And it wasn't on my radar screen. There's plenty of macro stuff going on. The dollar was going up, oil markets collapsing. Just there was fun to be had trading elsewhere. And then it was back in 2019, uh, an old friend of mine that I've known for a long time, who's also a global macro investor subscriber for a very long time, uh, Dan Tapiero, started pestering me. And he's a true macro guy. And he started pestering me saying, oh, you need to look at Bitcoin again. I'm like, Dan, I'm busy. And he's like, no, you need to look at Bitcoin again. And I, you know, Dan, I take very seriously. He, he's a really, really smart guy and a great macro thinker. So eventually I just gave up because I got bored of him pestering me. So I said, look, come on Real Vision and tell me what you're thinking. And he laid out this immaculate case of why he was accumulating a lot of Bitcoin um, and why right now. So after that, I started just doing technical analysis, waiting for price action. And it had been consolidating in this wide ranging kind of wedge or triangle pattern for a period of time. Now, all the way through this whole thing from 2008, well, 2013 onwards, when I first discovered Bitcoin, I said, well, the next recession is when crypto and macro meet, because the next recession is going to create extreme outcomes for central banks and people will not be comfortable with it and it will completely accelerate adoption into this new digital world and i've been talking about this parallel financial universe for since 2013 and it was very clear to me where it was all going and so it was march i very um done a very good job predicting the um, COVID crisis and a recession that was coming anyway. And the acceleration of those two things into one point, I knew was going to be really ugly. And I was very long bonds into that um, and short equities and did extremely well. But into that March sell-off, Bitcoin collapsed to the bottom of the range of that wedge. And that was it. That was my signal because that chart pattern I'm usually pretty good with figuring out that it means something. And it was the kind of time horizon pattern that works well for me. The halving had happened. Everything was in place. So I was like, okay, I, I, I'm going to start buying this. So I bought it and then it broke the top of the wedge. And I said, right, that's 
that's the confirmation. So I added to it. And then as the next few months developed and Bitcoin accelerated, I started looking at the charts of Bitcoin versus other assets because I have a finite amount of capital and I'm like, where can I make the most returns? And I looked at it and realized that Bitcoin was about to outperform everything on earth, including the Fed balance sheet, i.e. the amount of monetary printing or debasement that's going on. And if that was the case, then it was suboptimal to have my money in any single other asset on earth except Bitcoin. So that was it. I put every single penny that I had and and subsequently every bit of cash that I've had spare since that day into crypto. I then was 100% Bitcoin up until about, let's say, October, November. And I've been following the chart of ETH and the ETH Bitcoin cross. And I realized that Ethereum was likely to outperform Bitcoin. I've been a fan of ETH from the beginning. I thought the first phase would be the store of value, and then that would drive understanding of the broader crypto opportunities and, and what was going on. And DeFi had obviously just started taking off and was coming on the radar screens. And so I thought, okay. So I started allocating to ETH, reducing my Bitcoin, and then eventually had a larger weight in ETH than Bitcoin, and then started adding altcoins. Um, and these were, what I did, I took a dumb basket of of um, cryptocurrencies and tokens because I couldn't pick one from the other. So I did the typical macro thing. I took an equally weighted basket of a bunch of large caps that basically broadly covered the space from DeFi to decentralized exchanges, et cetera, and then just bought those and sat on them. And they exploded higher as people started going out the risk curve, which is very typical in financial markets. So, you know, let's say in equity market, bull markets, usually what happens, people buy the S&P or whatever first, then they start looking at smaller stocks, and then they start going to emerging markets, and then they end up in frontier markets. Really, really common. This is how you drive returns over the cycle. So that's what I did. And then I've started adapting that position even more so, I, I uh, sold more Bitcoin, bought more, more ETH, and then also added to where I thought the macro bets lay in the space, as opposed to the dumb bet of the all the altcoins in a basket. And the macro bet for me is social tokens and the metaverse, which is where I think this is all going. And that's probably a five-year time horizon, uh, much like my time horizon was in crypto when I first looked at it. It's like, this is where it's all going everything that's happening now, all the fighting over should you buy Bitcoin or not is noise. That's awesome. I, I want to keep going on. You, you just hinted at the metaverse. I have a question there and I hesitate to skip over these other interesting questions right. that are coming in my head along the way, but uh, I want to keep going deeper for a little bit. So you mentioned the metaverse. I've heard you talk about how um, the metaverse from your perspective, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but you said it could double global GDP because it's almost like discovering the Americas again. It's this new world. It's not in the physical world, but it's very much real world. Um, can you expand on that? What is the metaverse? Why are you so bullish on what it could do for the global economy? So we live in a digital age and the internet connected everybody. And at the same time, as Moore's law continues to work and continues to increase computing power, what we're able to do with that combination of things gets more extraordinary. And we saw the rise of gaming over the last 10 years and the quality resolution and experience of gaming 
meant that people were happy living in games as a way of spending their free time. They start then meeting their friends in games. So they're living in a virtual world. So they don't need to go to see their friend next door. They can all hang out together, shooting things or solving puzzles or whatever they're doing. That morphed into people wanting, as humans do, to have more status within the community, and they earn themselves credits for doing certain things or and, and you know getting tools given to them unlocked by their gaming skills, which have value. They also then started wanting to, to have status in terms of what they wore, and that was the rise of skins. So what this was creating were things of digital value. So now not only is it a game, but it was digital value. Then people started creating things of digital value within these metaverses, these games, which is a digital representation of, of a world, doesn't have to be our world. And they started being able to then create these things and sell them to others. So now we have an economy that started. And that, when I discovered all of this, I realized that's where everything is going. So it's, it's kind of the Ready Player One world. It can be VR. It can be just on your computer screen or your mobile phone, or it can be augmented reality. It's a combination between everything, and it doesn't matter. But those virtual worlds also allow for other things. If, if they prove that digital goods have value, and NFTs have proved that subsequently, then therefore digital real estate has value, and therefore digital economies have value. And then you suddenly start finding out that there are architects firms who earn their living, getting paid in ETH, building out buildings in Decentraland or crypto voxels. You realize that people are undertaking tasks of which they earn things. People are lending out swords in games and getting a yield for it. And you're realizing you're creating a complex adaptive society in the digital world of which you don't need to actually have a physical manifestation. And you can be who you want in it. And the advent of cryptocurrencies, blockchain technologies, and interoperability meant that you can move from one universe to another and carry your wealth across them. Okay, so now we've created a platform of wealth, creation, and storage, and a meaning and a society that exists that didn't exist before. So now we're living in an avatar world. And an avatar world means you can be anybody you want to be. So now you can be a kid in Ethiopia and you're on a level playing field because nobody cares about where you're from, your skin color, your educational background, none of that matters in this new world. So that's pretty interesting. But then you think, where can it all go? Well, clearly education is gonna go onto this. Clearly without question, um, it's a better place to engage young people. And therefore you can level the playing field in education globally. Okay, that becomes super interesting. So now you can work in here educate in here and socialize in here. You've then got culture going on. So you've got NFTs and art galleries and music events with 20 million people in Minecraft joining a Travis Scott event and Marshmallow getting 5 million people or whatever the numbers he got. And then you're really realizing, okay, we've now got a robust world of which people can work in and live in and operate in. So now on a global playing field where there's about three and a half billion gamers, you can start people in countries that would have no access to education 
or the relative earning power of Western democracies, they can compete on the level playing field in all of this. So you're creating a global economy, bringing in the smartest minds around the world who can get paid, earn, learn, all in the same place. So that's the scale of it. So where are we now? It blew my mind when I was talking about this from somebody and somebody just said, hey, check out this gallery in CryptoVoxels. So they sent me a coordinate in CryptoVoxels, like a web address. And I clicked on it and suddenly I'm in a room with this avatar that it's given me a temporary avatar. And I'm in a room flicking through um, NFTs, looking at this gallery, watching videos, that music playing, I could change the music. And I had this whole experience was like, okay, well, that's the end of websites. And then when you start thinking about the logical conclusion is, okay, so we can all create our own spaces. So we can have a Jake room and you can have your um, podcast stuff set up. You can have, you know, market prices. You can have the research you read, your Twitter account, all of this displayed in a way that you want it in a 3D structured format that is not the kind of 2D Windows experience. So you've got the new version of Windows. Well, that's the end of platforms. Why do you need to be on a platform when all platforms can come together at this point? So I think the amount of change that this is bringing is something that most people cannot simply co co um, comprehend. But it's not like I'm, I'm a futurist talking about something that's not happening. This is happening in real time at a speed of which people will not be able to grasp. Something that I call the exponential age, where there's a number of these things all happening at the same time, all with exponential adoption curves, where the world will look wildly different in 10 years' time than it does today. Wow, yeah, that, uh, f first of all, just that was pretty awesome, the the picture that you just painted for me and, and for everyone listening. I think uh, that was just a crazy vision and uh, crazy, not in a, like crazy, but crazy in just a very cool way. And I haven't heard it depicted exactly like that before you, you said you're not a futurist uh and it might be coming soon in the next five years but i still think you are uh not just a macro investor but uh, a futurist as well to be able to sort of foresee something like that and and articulate it the way you just did uh the thing about that that you know one thing i, I think i also saw that you said was uh something along the lines of like the biggest impediment to uh to Bitcoin adoption is going to be Bitcoin maximalists. And uh, I'll say how, how this connects in my mind. So you talked about how people could be, you know, architects in VR or uh, V architects, uh, if, if you'll humor that and, uh, you know, get paid in, in Ethereum and, you know, they're creating buildings in, in Decentraland where I can go and host my podcast in a room and, and all of these different things. There's this huge vision that, um, depends in many ways you know obviously there's like the vr component but it also depends on crypto to be able to you know you're not going to be in these worlds paying with a credit card um or, or certainly not with cash or uh gold or, or anything like that and so there's this element where all of this like incredible future i think hinges on the success of crypto as a whole moving forward and to think that it's just going to be bitcoin from my perspective you know, while, while it could end up that Bitcoin ends up being, you know, 90 or 95% or 99% of all crypto value or whatever it might be, um, I have a hard time foreseeing that. And yet maximalists will say, you know, any other coin is, is a shit coin. And even Ethereum, which I think is, is sort of 
crazy to say at this point. My, my question for you is, um, you know, as a macro guy, as an investor, you look at Bitcoin and it's like, okay, you even recognize this in 2013, like, okay, digital gold, got it. Um, and you look at gold, it's like $10 trillion market cap. Okay. So Bitcoin can be probably $10 trillion, probably more than that. Cause you know, millennials like it better or whatever it is, Gen, Gen Z. Um, but you have like a rough approximation, whereas Ethereum is sort of unlike anything, you know, we can't compare it to anything. And it's like, it's just very hard to sort of appreciate what could happen to value and money in like a very fundamental way. How do you think about the broader landscape of crypto in that way, where it seems like you've very much gone from someone who was just focused on Bitcoin to now focused on everything and taking a very much of a, you know, I can't know which one is going to be super successful, but there's going to be a lot of winners here. So the internet from 1990 to 2000 grew at 63% a year. It was the fastest adoption of any technology in recorded history. By comparing the number of users um, and matching them up, Bitcoin has been growing since 2013 at a rate of 113% a year. So basically double that. It's the fastest, not Bitcoin, sorry, crypto. So crypto adoption is the fastest adoption of any technology in human history now. And it's growing so fast that people can't get their heads around it. The Bitcoin maximalists are looking at a past. There is no way that Bitcoin can catch up to what is really going on because things are moving too fast. Now, this is all based around network effects. And network effects, basically Metcalfe's law states that the value of a network is essentially the number of nodes in a network and the number of connections between them. Now, Bitcoin has that element and it's very good. People are highly incentivized to bring new people into the network. But actually the number of connections on the network between them is still relatively limited. The lightning layer is being built out. They're nowhere near on NFTs in a meaningful way, although they're working on it. But essentially, the truth is there are more developers working on Ethereum. Its adoption rate is faster than Bitcoin has ever been. Um, it has more developers, more nodes, more use cases than anything we've seen before. It looks more like the internet in its in that respect. But But so let's step back and say, okay, what numbers can we get to? Firstly, I don't think Bitcoin will remain dominant in any way, shape, or form. It will continue to grow. It'll do well. It'll get to its whatever 20 trillion market cap, maybe even goes above that. Fine. All well and good. I'll own some of it, and that's great. The rest of the space is going to dwarf that. Um, and if I look at, let's say, the global equity market, the global bond market, global FX well, FX is larger. Um, but you know, you're talking, these things are like $200 trillion markets. Now, if I continue to follow the extrapolation of the rate of change of adoption of crypto, basically it gets us to a billion people by 2024. Now that could easily be solved just by Facebook DM or central bank digital currencies, which are all crypto, and they will create on-ramps and off-ramps for everybody into all the rest of the crypto world. So we get to a billion people by then, and that's lowering the rate of growth from 63% a, uh, from 113% a year to 83%, just because I don't want to be wildly over-optimistic. Well, you start getting numbers by, let's say, 2020, or 2030, let's say, of $200 trillion for the crypto space. 
um, which is logical because it's the size of the securities industry sort of thing. Now, I think all securities are going to go into crypto too. It's going to be bigger than all of this. I think it'll be bigger than all of them put together. Um, but that's basically the magnitude. So we look at it now with, I don't know where it is today, one point something trillion market cap, it hit two at peak. We've got like 100x from here. <laughs> I mean, I mean, this is the biggest wealth generating machine we're ever going to see, ever. And that's the frustrating thing for me is the Bitcoin Maximus just... They're on the wrong narrative. It should be Bitcoin is at the epicenter of this. It is the kind of pristine collateral of this all. And all of this world is being built around it. And this is fantastic. We can all participate in any way we want. Um, do your own homework. Understand where you're taking risk. Understand what's less risky. Bitcoin may be less risky. Other things are more risky. That's okay. That's absolutely normal. And this constant attention of this is a scam, that is a scam, is just simply ridiculous. Because basically this whole crypto space is like real-time VC investing. Things fail, things work, people are scammers, and people try their hardest and fail. And that's all part of it. And you size your bet accordingly, and then once you see network adoption um, taking hold, you can add to your bet, because once you get reasonable network adoption, then you get reasonable assurity that it's going to follow Metcalfe's law, which is basically a logarithmic trend ad infinitum. And it's clear that Ethereum is, is, ticks every single box of that. And I'm no Ethereum maximalist either. I think there's so many interesting things coming. You know, we only talked about community tokens and stuff like that. I mean, people have literally, they're trying to live in the present day or the past and assess where this is going. That is the absolute wrong way of doing it. Or they're trying to assume that the world is not an adaptive, complex society where things don't change and even suboptimal things end up succeeding, much like VHS beat out Betamax in video wars, even though it's suboptimal. That is the way of things. It's all about ad adoption. Right. And uh, so you, you've talked about, you know, how. Well, you just mentioned, I guess, the, this concept of community tokens, and you've talked previously about how this upends not just finance, but all business models. It changes fundamentally where value coalesces around communities rather than companies and um, you know stocks and things alike. Um, can you expand on what you know? What's your perspective in regards to community tokens? Uh, you're, you're obviously not just about. Ethereum and these things, what is a community token in your mind? What are you seeing now? What do you expect in the future? So if we're entering a world where Metcalfe's law is the most successful business model, then it needs to be applied. So if you look at why that happened is, you know, people like Facebook, Google, Twitter, LinkedIn, I mean, everybody basically learned from Daniel Kahneman, the godfather of behavioral economics, how to apply this to create network effects around platforms. Those platforms became the fastest rise of any businesses to a trillion dollars in history because the business model of network effects means that the network is worth more than all of the cash flows, but in addition, there are behavioral incentives to increase the size of the network. Bitcoin basically came out of that and follows the same law. But then we've then seen a coalescing of power around what is known as influencers. What's an influencer? An influencer is somebody with a large audience online that that um, uses it for whatever purpose. Usually it's a mission. Um, and 
that we've seen the rise of communities. So communities have driven online all over the place, whether it's on YouTube, whether it's on podcasts, whether it's on Twitter, all over the place. Like Twitter has a big fintech community or a crypto community. Then we've seen the rise of celebrity influencer business people who have recognized this and have taken it to new levels. So Elon Musk would be the classic example. He built an enormous community by using a mission statement and a sense of purpose and coalesced a group behind him that followed that. It's pretty much the, how you control, control is probably the wrong word, how you organize complex adaptive societies in general. Religion is basically based around exactly the same thing as is government. So that's what Elon did. And that allowed him to build a more robust business because he could, they, the community, as long as he didn't betray the community, they would forgive him for being Elon and his antics and his misdemeanors uh, and his false starts because they wanted him to succeed. And that gave him basically unlimited access to capital, uh, people who wanted to buy his shares, and his community was so powerful that politicians don't want to stop him. Right, that's genius. The other person who did this really well was Chamath. Chamath realized that he had a mission. His mission was that you're all being screwed and that the whole system needs to be disrupted. Very enticing for the young population. They followed him in their millions, and he's been able to build businesses on the back of it. Kathy Wood also built a business on the back of mission statement, purpose, and community. So these things are really meaningful now. These people have more power than businesses that don't have communities. Um, and that becomes extremely interesting. Now, how do you really organize large groups of people? Well, the other thing missing from the equation outside of the mission statement and the, the purpose and the kind of rules, societal rules, is money. Once you add money into the equation, you now can organize that society totally. So that's what tokens offer. Society, um, society tokens, community tokens, social tokens, whatever you want to call them, creator tokens, are basically a way of organizing and rewarding a community for being the community. So they get to earn, spend, save community tokens that have value to them. And that gives them different benefits. Whether it's for a music star, they get more access to that musician or NFTs of album drops or, or tickets or whatever it may be. But it gives the person at the center of the community direct access to their community and they don't now have to rent it back from Facebook, Google and all the others that, that act as kind of gatekeepers to your community and also extract value from your community. So musicians famously lose about 80% of all of the economics because of all of the middlemen. And basically all this token stuff stops all of that. But this works for major brands too. It, it works for um, good businesses that there is no way that Apple will not tokenize. Google or certainly YouTube will tokenize. Facebook is tokenizing. That's what DM is all about. Um, we will see almost every business model move towards tokens. Why? Because A, it drops your marketing costs massively because virality is the predominant force of nature behind Metcalfe's law. So the community itself is rewarded in increasing the value of the community token. Um, it creates this internal economy where people don't leave, so it's stickier than traditional business models. Um, it, it has so many benefits that it becomes obvious that this is going to be the predominant model. And in fact, I'm working on some 
really big opportunities in this space. And we will also do it for Real Vision 2, where we will end up tokenizing the community. And that creates a whole layer of value that didn't exist before, the value of community. And that wasn't really reflected in the share price. Maybe it was it was reflected in some of the share prices of some of the firms that had network effects as part of their core business model. But most of those didn't have community. Like Facebook doesn't have community. Communities basically rent um, space off Facebook to access their communities. So I think we're going to see this huge drive towards tokenizations of these communities. It's going to create enormous amounts of wealth. It's going to create engagement and ring fences around businesses that have never existed before. Those businesses are already coalescing around DAO structures, which are the uh, kind of decentralized autonomous organizations where there is no organizational hierarchical structure and that they organize the society about a, a bunch of rules, which the DAO um, share uh, people involved in the DAO will vote for, or the token holders vote for, and then people can share in the economics of the community. Um, so yeah, this is all coming. And again, people cannot get their heads around it, but everybody from Disney to Universal Music to Apple to Facebook are all going to tokenize. And it's going to happen at a pace that people can't understand. Let's face it, governments are just about to tokenize too. That's essentially what central bank digital currencies are. They're creating a digital rendition of their own currency structure to be able to fit into this new world of metaverses, community tokens, cryptocurrencies, digital assets, NFTs, and all of it. Great. So if we are indeed headed into this crypto future, uh, sort of the way you, that you projected, or, or at least something that, that rhymes with that vision, um, what happens to the stuff that you started your career working with? What happens to traditional finance and you know, hedge funds who are invested all across the board? They might have 1% of their money in Bitcoin or something. Like, like you mentioned, your first, your first meeting, I think, with Paul Tudor Jones, he had the phenomenal uh, document that he put out, I don't know, maybe a year ago, a year and a couple months ago, uh, before this bull cycle, basically giving all the reasoning for why this bull cycle will be coming and, and how um, you know Bitcoin specifically presented a great hedge against inflation, which he saw coming. Um, but you know, he's not talking, I, I would assume he's not talking with his, you know, investors about things like, you know, the metaverse and, and maybe I'm wrong, but um, the, the average traditional investor is not quite as forward thinking, I think, in a lot of these areas as you are, it's enough to get them on Bitcoin, which is still a relatively small asset in, in their eyes. So what happens to the current world or the old world, as you might call it, as crypto evolves from what you said could be like a million and a half dollar asset class into a hundred million or $200 million asset class. And who knows if it's even termed in dollars at that point. Yeah. And it's already happening. So I can see it. So first was Dan Moorhead, ex-Tiger Management, one of the most famous hedge funds in the world. He started his new hedge fund called Pantera, closed it down, said I'm doing 100% crypto. So he was the visionary. Then I think probably after that was John Burbank, uh, Passport Capital, good friend of mine, amazing, amazing macro visionary. He shut down his fund, went to crypto and exponential age style bets. Dan Tapiero, Mark Yusko, all did the same thing. Um, and then now we're seeing 
So all of those guys understand the metaverse. They understand social tokens. They're probably not invested yet because it's still early, but they understand where this is going. Then the the next big shift was probably Alan Howard. Alan's a legend in 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 the hedge fund world, and he's basically a hundred percent this now, and and so on. So bit by bit, everyone's migrating across this new world. Why? Because we're hedge fund guys, and we're after superior returns. It's as simple as that. And the original asset world offers suboptimal returns compared to this. There's currently seven and a half thousand crypto assets. Um, and that gives you, because there's not that much capital in the space yet, it gives you abilities to generate supernormal returns and excess alpha, which will continue for a long time as this space grows. So here you've basically got the financial markets, God knows, like in the 60s, where you know George Soros and all these guys were making huge returns. But the returns are larger because it's all driven by network effects. So that's going to suck in everybody. And I've spoken to pretty much every major hedge fund. They're all moving this way. They understand they have to move, but they, they're slow. They're still getting Bitcoin. And then, yeah, we get Ethereum and we don't know how to deal with the rest of the space. But there is a migration across as other assets return less in value. But there's another big thing going on in the macro world is the central banks are crammed into a corner because of the debt super cycle, the aging demographics. And they're like, well, we can't let rates rise, so the rate market is dead. We can't let equities fall because then the boom, baby boomers are going to be wiped out. It's going to hit the economy, so we can't do that. So equities are kind of supported. Well, the credit markets, nobody's allowed to blow up anymore because the Fed bought credit in the last recession. So we've now seen junk bonds in real terms trading negative rates. So that's the end of that market. So you're kind of left with the FX market. But I don't think governments are going to allow FX to move. So they're going to keep it range bound because they can't let it blow up. <laughs> so you've basically taken the returns out of the markets and you're left with equities. And particularly these, what I call the exponential age equities, the ones, the new technologies that are seeing mass adoption and will so over the next 10 years, they will drive supernormal returns as they've always done. And then it's crypto. So you're crowding out investment and pushing it into this alternative world, which is fantastic. The central banks are doing our job for us. They're going to make us rich by doing this because we can all invest in this. And you can be poor and invest in this. You don't need all of the you know, Wall Street brokers and bankers and middlemen and all of this stuff to be involved. And who knows? You might get rich owning a social token in your favorite recording artist because that artist blows up, has a huge album, has a massive tour. Suddenly their community quadruples and your token's worth a lot more money. Or you've earned it in the metaverse. So... I think the wealth generating opportunities from this are gigantic. So institutional investors to retail investors, there's only one place to go. Well, two, this and these kind of tech adoption curves. Yeah, that, that's amazing. And, uh, and I, I take your point on, you know, anyone having access. It's, uh, you, you mentioned earlier how like, you know, looking at crypto is almost like being a VC. The difference being, I think that, like to your point, you know, anyone with internet access essentially can go and invest in crypto and it should only get easier and easier in the next, you know, it's happening every month, basically. Uh, whereas VC, you need to be, you know, accredited investor and permission from so-and-so and, -so, and uh, same with all these institutional investors. So I think, you know, there's always a, uh, 
the devil's advocate, but I think the uh, the optimistic view is that hopefully people from around the world, so long as you're sort of, you know, if you can find your way on the internet and find yourself some smart people to listen to and some good resources on, on YouTube or podcasts or whatever it is, um, you can have the opportunity to recognize this sort of stuff early and, uh, you know, place a small bet here and there or whatever. And maybe that, uh, that helps, you know, I think there's a lot of, uh, wealth inequality probably around the corner as well. well but this is a, things. this is a key point about wealth inequality as well. So tokenization solves that. So right now, how do the rich get rich? They get these opportunities for accredited investors early because they're allowed to, of which less well-off people can't because apparently less well-off people are not deemed to be able to take risk while they're allowed to go to the bookmakers and make bets. I mean, it's, it's ludicrous, but that's the, that's the decision made somewhere. So that, that changes because you kind of equalize that. But the rich also got really rich in property markets and property markets have become unaffordable to most. And particularly the properties that go up a lot, which are the expensive properties because there is a lot of money and limited demand, stock, higher stock to flow. So that's why you know a lot of people got rich buying you know $20 million apartments in Manhattan that went up to $50 million. That's out of all of our realm. But once you tokenize real estate, the rich guy can put 10% his assets in, and you and I can. And it can be, doesn't really matter how much. And that's a game changer. You know, right now, some share prices like Berkshire Hathaway are too expensive for the average investor because you can't fractionalize them. Well, that's starting, but tokenization of equities will help immensely too. So people don't need to worry about the price and they're learning that with Bitcoin. They still keep saying, oh, it's expensive. It's, you know, 35,000. Yeah, it's not expensive because you can buy a small fraction of it. And people will learn this. So it becomes hugely democratizing and egalitarian, helping broaden out the wealth effects, not just to the people who can afford the scarcest assets. You can tokenize Ferraris, you can tokenize artwork as the NFT world has just shown. So everybody can participate in the same things. And that is a game changer. Yep, totally agree. Uh, well, Raul, I know we're coming up on time and uh, want to be respectful of yours, but this has been a, uh, a fascinating conversation and really mind opening for me and for everyone else listening, I'm sure. Uh, so appreciate you taking the time and sharing your perspective. Where can people go to follow you and everything you're working on? And as all of this develops, see uh, what the latest thing is that Raul has to say. Yeah. So the two places is I'm very active on Twitter. Um, I try and you know reply to people, do what I can, although my Twitter following is getting a little bit big to do it, but I, I do my best. So I'm very active. Um, and that's at Raul, R-A-O-U-L-G-M-I. Um, you can find me there. But if you are interested in crypto, it's a no-brainer to sign up to Real Vision's free crypto channel, which is realvision.com forward slash crypto. It's free. Just put your email address in, and there's a piece of new content every day on all of these new protocols, the macro thinking behind it, where it's all going, the metaverse, social tokens, you name it, it's all there. It's the broadest set of interviews and analysis of the whole space that exists anywhere. So just go there, it's free. 